The US Supreme Court has won many headlines in recent years, most infamously for overturning Roe v. Wade in 2022. Unlike most other prominent positions in America, the Supreme Court justices are not elected, but nominated by the incumbent president, and yet they have the power to set legal precedences that can last hundreds of years. So in this episode, we're going to find out what is the Supreme Court? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining me this week is Dr. Emma Long, Associate Professor of American History and Politics and the Head of the Department of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. I swear I'm going to shorten that after a few episodes, but uh, thanks again for joining me and welcome back to the podcast. Great, thanks to be back. Yeah. It's good to be Um, back, I should say. (laughs) Um, So... The Supreme Court. It's a big topic. Um, it's I think huge. It really is. And I feel like the Supreme Court has been in the news a lot for things recently. So we're going to just start to dive a bit into who they are, what they do, and sort of lay the groundwork for what I imagine will be many future episodes on things related to the Supreme Court. So first, uh, let's start by talking not about what the Supreme Court is, but who are the Supreme Court um, and how does someone get there? Sure. Um, and yeah, I should point out, I've, I've been studying the Supreme Court for 25 years at this point, which makes me feel old when I admit that. Um, so I could uh, I could talk about this all day. I just find it endlessly, endlessly fascinating and the complexities just make it, it more so. But OK, so the Supreme Court is currently nine judges uh, who we call justices just for for clarity in terminology. Um, That number is not fixed by the Constitution. It's been as low as six and as high as 10 and various iterations between that. But it's been nine justices since 1869. So it's it's considered a number that you don't mess with too much. And those who have suggested it or tried have ultimately failed as far as um, as far as they've attempted it. So we're talking about nine people. It's a small group right, when you think about the power that the, the court has. It's worth noting that as we're recording this in what, April 2023, the current Supreme Court is probably the most diverse in its entire history. So there are four women on the, the court out of the, the nine, so almost half. There have only been six women in total. So it gives you a sense of, of why that's important. There are also three people of colour on the, the court at the moment, and there have only been four in total in its entire history. So you begin to get a sense of, of why it's it's an important moment when we think about who is on the court and questions of, of representation. But in other ways, actually, the court's not, not diverse in, in other ways. Um, so, for example, of the nine current justices, eight of them went to two law schools, Harvard and Yale, which is sort of like the the American equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge. The only one who didn't was um, Amy Coney Barrett, who got her law degree from Notre Dame. Eight of the justices were judges, 
before they were appointed to the Supreme Court. Only Elena Kagan wasn't. Uh, and while that might seem fairly normal, actually, historically, that's quite unusual. Not, uh, not all Supreme Court justices have been judges, although they've all got some kind of legal background. Politicians have been particularly well represented on the, the court. Um, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, for example, was governor of California before he became Chief Justice. Uh, Hugo Black had been senator from Alabama. Some have been in government service. So Tom Clark was attorney general, so the nation's highest lawyer. Um, Elena Kagan had been solicitor general under, under Obama. And there was one former president. So William Howard Taft, who was the 27th president of the, the US, went on to be the 10th chief justice of the Supreme Court. Um, the only person to have held both of those roles, we should point out, was quite unusual uh, to, to do that. So it's diverse in some ways and not in, in others. And in terms of that legal background, some people have said that actually perhaps the court worked better when it had a mix of people with different backgrounds because when you're a lawyer and a judge you are trained to think in particular ways and to think about questions in certain certain ways or to formulate it in certain ways whereas if you get people who've come from education or politics or business or something along those lines you might might ask different kinds of questions um, but it that's a that's an ongoing debate so that's um, an interesting point you touch on, and I'm going to get the name wrong here, but but the the, the person you name checked that stood out to me was uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Yep. Is that correct? It is. Yep. So, um, if my memory serves me well, she was one of the more recent Supreme Court justices to be nominated, and she was by Donald Trump. Twenty twenty. Yes, uh, and that made some headlines because it was a particularly controversial pick for Supreme Court justice. Uh, so I think we need to touch on the fact that because Supreme Court justices are nominated by a president and presidents often or always have quite a, 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 a political bias, there are questions, aren't there? There are questions about the politicisation of the Supreme Court, um, the motives behind why certain people are nominated and whether or not that has an impact on the decisions that are made. Yeah. Um, and to, to say Amy Coney Barrett's nomina nomination was controversial <laughs> might be underselling it a, a little <laughs> bit. Um, of course, uh, what happened was that liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg died a few months before the a couple of months before the election and uh, Barrett's appointment was sort of rushed through by an administration that had or by Republicans who had held up attempts by President Obama to to make an appointment in 2016 um, arguing that it should wait until after the election so you've got either end of the Trump administration you've got battles over what should happen to the the Supreme Court yeah I mean there's this big debate at the moment about whether the Supreme Court is political or whether it's more political than it used to be in the past. And you know, on one hand, the Supreme Court is always, it's always been political. It can't help but be political. It's one of the three branches of government. It's not just a court. It's part of the government system. It has the power to interpret the Constitution, um, which there's some debate about whether that was intended in the Constitution as it was written, particularly. But since 1803, in a case called Marbury versus Madison, 
when the court effectively said it's the role of the court to interpret the constitution when somebody says that one of the other branches has done something which violates the terms of the constitution the court has had that power it's called the power of judicial review and it's not really seriously been challenged so now we we sort of accept that as as given so it gives it an awful lot of power in the the process and there is concern that judges are making political uh, political points historically it, it, it partly comes as a, a result of changing thinking about the way that justices work right and about the job of the the judge so in the 19th century judges were seen um, as oracles right this, this idea that you know they they looked at the law and they looked at the challenge and they put the two things side by side and went, yes, that fits with that. And so, yes, it's it's legal or yes, it's constitutional. And it was a kind of mechanical idea that changed in the early 20th century with what we call realist jurisprudence, which is the was the recognition that that judges interpret the law. They have to. And Supreme Court judges do specifically because they see some of the biggest, most controversial issues. But the idea was that, yes, yes, they interpret, of course they do, but they do it within a very specific legal framework, that this isn't them going, well, I want this. This is how that comes out. More case of what are the legal principles that govern this and how do we interpret them? And that there was, there's room for disagreement as there is over any issue, but that it is governed by those sort of those legal rules and that's the that's view of judges that has and justices that that's governed for for nearly the the last 100 years but what's changed in recent years i guess is the role of the court has got bigger for lots of reasons that i suspect we don't have time to to go into today um but i could talk about it at length people look to the court more often it gets involved in more issues and american politics itself has become more divided um in the last 20 30 years so these big important issues carry more weight in terms of how they get decided and and how they they come out and that has fed its way into the the appointment process. So yes, presidents have always looked to to make appointments for with people who broadly share their philosophical outlook. We would expect that, I think. But that seems to have become much more prominent in in recent years, and because the politics have become more divided, the the politics of the appointments have become more more divided and the the significance of it has has become bigger so what you then see is the appointment process has become political and there's a debate about how far a political appointment process is make make for political appointments right i think we we can separate those two things out somebody who's at the heart of it it doesn't necessarily mean that they're political even if the the circus is going on around them This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But there's also, of course, the, the view, and this is 
much more common in the media and from politicians, both who do and don't like the results that are coming from the Supreme Court, that the justices are acting as politicians, acting as politicians, that they're politicians in robes, to, to quote a famous book title. Now, the justices themselves say that's not how they make decisions. They are absolutely adamant. You can do a very quick search online um, for, for this and come up with any number of speeches by sitting Supreme Court justices, both current and former, who say, that's not how we do things. It might look like that from the outside, but it's not what we do. We don't sit around the table and go, well, I'm a Republican and therefore I think this and they don't do, do that. And it's become quite common to dismiss that, right? to, to say either they're self-deluding um, or sometimes that they're, they're lying outright or just sort of missing the, the point. I am one of the few people I think you will find who will say, I actually agree with them. I don't think they make decisions as politicians. I think they are trained as lawyers. They are trained to look at legal questions. And I think they take that seriously. You don't get to the point that they are in their careers without taking that idea of being a lawyer and being a judge seriously. But big but coming here. Because of the divisions over politics in the United States, in they said the last few decades or so, some of these legal questions have become politicized and you see differences in interpretations of legal approaches from people who come from a conservative perspective and people who come from a liberal perspective. So, and you're generally likely to find that if someone's politically liberal, they're going to think about interpreting the law in a liberal way. And if they're politically conservative, they're going to think about the law in a conservative way as well. And that ultimately then shapes the way they think about the issues. So they're thinking about them in legal terms, but those legal terms are shaped by some of the broader political debates that are going on. That's what I think is going on. So I don't think it's... Politics isn't completely separate from it, but I also don't buy into the, the narrative which says that, they are, that the Supreme Court is effectively just like another political branch that's no different from, from different from Congress or the, the presidency. And I think it's really dangerous to think about it that way. So it seems like uh, sort of the, the, the gist of, of, of what you just said is that, yes, the personal value system of the Supreme Court justices can influence the interpretation of cases and the decisions that they then reach. But that's not necessarily wrong. Um, I just think it's the way it is. You mm. know, judges are people. You know, you, yeah. you can't ask them not to be. You know, we all have the things that we, we bring to the way that we, we think about issues for what, whatever context. And, you know, you can be aware of your own biases, but you can't necessarily always turn them off. Yeah. So I, I think it, it's natural. I think it's inevitable. I think that's always going to happen. I think what's, ch I, and I don't think that's ever been any different, particularly on the, the Supreme Court throughout history but i think what has happened is that the politics of the issues that they are being asked to decide and the reaction to those issues have become more and more heated mm. so they look political even if they're they're not in the way that we might think of it that way yeah and i think um this is going to be a a, a divisive topic of discussion yeah but... like i said I'm, I'm one of the i'm i'm one of the very few people you will find who who 
doesn't buy into the whole they're, they're just politicians I'm aware I'm in a minority on, <laughs> on this and uh, certainly some of the things that they've they've done recently make it harder to to make that that case but part of if you like the way I see my job in trying to to understand and explain the the Supreme Court is to take what I personally think about the result out of it whether I like mm. a, a result or not is is irrelevant in most context my idea is to try and understand how it came about or why it it came about now I live in the UK right? it's easier for me to to do that because I'm not living the consequences of it but I think if you want to study it you have to try and separate those things off yeah and I think that's a good way of looking at it um, <laughs> but you know I think if we if we start to focus a bit more on the actual process of the Supreme Court because I think that the the outcomes will be deliberated to the end of time and no one will ever unanimously agree but how does a case actually find its way up to the Supreme Court? Okay, so as we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about the Constitution, actually, the US is a federal system. There are state laws and federal laws, and there are court systems that, that grow up in relation to, to both of those things. So the, the easiest way I can describe it is basically to think of two triangles side by side right, with the big base at the the bottom. The vast majority of of laws are state laws. So if you are hauled up in court because you've broken the law, most of the time it's going to be because you you violated state law other than federal law. Federal laws tend to involve things that are really big issues or or crimes that, that cross state lines. So things like kidnapping or terrorism, some really serious murder. So your first level of how you you might get to the Supreme Court is the one we're all familiar with, which is a trial, the trial court. There's a judge, a jury, or possibly a jury that decides whether you're you're innocent or guilty of whatever it is you've been charged with. That's that's the first level, and it exists at both state and, and federal level. The next step up from that are the appeals courts, and there are both state and federal appeals courts. Now, these courts don't retry the case. Their job is to look at things like procedural errors. So if if you think that evidence wasn't considered properly or somebody did something they shouldn't have done in part, as part of the, the trial or something wasn't, the, the law wasn't applied properly, you can take it to the, the next level, to the, the appeals court. If we look at just the state side of things, just for a minute, above the appeals court are state Supreme Courts. Each state has its own Supreme Court sometimes called that, sometimes called something slightly different. But state Supreme Courts are responsible for interpreting state law. The Supreme Court can't touch a state law. If somebody says, well, this law that I've been, you've said I've violated, violates the state constitution, that is a entirely a state issue. And the US Supreme Court has no jurisdiction. It can't get involved. So at that, in those kinds of questions, the state Supreme Court is the, the highest of them. Where the US Supreme Court gets involved is in the federal cases, which involve federal law, or if a state law is believed to violate the federal constitution. So for example, if a state passed a law which said, you are not allowed to say anything which criticizes the governor of the state, 
Right. Somebody's likely to come along and say, but that violates the First Amendment, that violates my freedom of speech. That's the federal constitution. So you would probably go up through the state system, but you would ha you could argue it to the US Supreme Court because it's about a federal issue. So there are a lot of levels to, to go through. It usually takes years to get to the US Supreme Court. It's a big undertaking. It's very expensive in many cases to, to get, take something that, that far. And you have to have a, a fairly serious issue for the Supreme Court to, to hear it. Roughly, again, the number varies year on year, but roughly 8,000 cases are appealed to the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court every year. The number that they hear has varied. When I first started studying the Supreme Court, it was about 100. Um, in more recent years, that number has been somewhere between 60 and 70. Per year? So Per year. So it's less than 1% of the cases that get appealed to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court actually hear. Wow. Um, and important to note is that since the 1920s, the Supreme Court has had almost exclusive control over the cases that it hears, what's called the Supreme Court docket, which is literally just a posh name for the list of cases it, it chooses to hear in a particular year. But for various reasons in the, the 1920s, the, the court was given pretty much there are a few exceptions but pretty much exclusive control of the cases it, it hears so when you know that a case is going to the supreme court there are two questions you should always ask or that are interesting to ask i guess one is why did they take this case what issue does it raise that is important enough that the court thinks it should take it and why does it take it now because sometimes these issues come to the court before and they've they've not accepted them but they accept them at a, a later point. So those, I think, are always good questions, whether you're looking at the court and its role historically or more contemporary cases, is since it has control, it has to, it's, take, it's chosen to take these for a reason. So what is it? It's interesting um, because you said before that the judicial process used to be, and the role of a judge used to be quite mechanical. Um, and over time, now within the current system, you know, you see how there's a lot of discretion involved in terms of the cases that the Supreme Court hears. There's a, a certain degree of um, unavoidable bias in the interpretation of those cases and the ultimate decisions that they come to. And yet the the decisions they make and the precedences that are set from that can have such huge ramifications. So, so my question is, why? When, it, when it's just their interpretation, why is their decision so important? I think it links to the question we were talking about before, actually, and about the, the court's role in the, the system of, of things. So, yes, it's interpretation, but there is this idea that it's interpretation within a legal framework and that those are limits on the justices, which is why I think that current discussion about the justices as politicians potentially is so damaging both to the court and to the legitimacy of what it, it does because it suggests that that's not not what's what's happening but the the supreme court like i said since marbury versus madison in, in 1803 has sort of accepted this role as, as being an interpreter of the constitution within these requirements and that's largely been accepted it's been doing it for 200 years at this point it's sort of accepted that that's the role that the supreme court does and one of the things that the justices always have to, to do is provide written opinions. So we don't know what goes on behind the, the scenes. It's one of the one of the relatively leak free elements of Washington, which is why um, the decision in Dobbs versus Jackson women's 
health, which is the the ruling that you mentioned earlier, which overturned Roe versus Wade, there was a leak of an early draft opinion a couple of months before it was handed down. And it was so unbelievably stunning because it was so rare for that to happen. Normally, the court has been pretty quiet on these things. You don't find out what happens until like 50 years later when you go rummaging through their <laughs> papers or archives and, and things like that so that that was that was really really surprising to to see that that happen but the the part of what the court does is that they they provide opinions which are written explanations for the decisions they are increasingly open to the public because the supreme court has its own website now so usually within an hour or so of the decisions being announced anybody can just go to the website and read the opinion and see what the court said so they have to be reasoned. And there's an expectation that those will be reasoned in legal terms, um, that it won't just be, well, we like this policy because we were appointed by Republican presidents. And that's why we're going, you're not, you're not going to find, you're not going to find that. So there has to be a legal reasoning. And that reasoning is important for the court's legitimacy in terms of how it does. It, it's also important for setting out how those lower courts that we mentioned before should interpret cases that are similar to it um, and, and how those those principles should be applied in, in future. So I think the idea that that interpretation is part of the process, but it's that it's interpretation within within certain limits, I think is is also part of why the, the court is seen to be legitimate. And ultimately as well, because the court famously Alexander Hamilton said that the court was the least dangerous branch because it doesn't have the power of the purse or the sword. So the Supreme Court doesn't have its own budget that it can pay people to enact the things that it says. And it doesn't have a police force to ensure that, that it happens. So all it can do is announce its decision and give reasons. And then other branches of government, either the federal government or state governments, need to then put that into practice and enact how that that works. Um, and in some ways, the legitimacy comes because those other branches, many of whom are elected, accept that what the Supreme Court has has said, whether they like it or not, they, they accept that it's legitimate and put it into, into effect. So there's a combination of history and constitutional role and the way in which they do their, their jobs that all play into to why the Supreme Court is powerful and why those branches have ultimately followed what the the Supreme Court says but it it's also why these attacks on the court and the idea that seeing the justices as politicians rather than as judges is so potentially dangerous to the court's legitimacy because if people start seeing these decisions as well that's by Republican or that that's by Republican court or by Democratic court or, or things along those lines then people must might start challenging the legitimacy and then the whole system falls apart. America, a history podcast, is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to Dr. Emma Long for joining me on this week's episode. And if you found this episode interesting, you can find out more by checking out the resources in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, do make sure that wherever you're listening, you drop us a rating and a review because that helps other people find us as well. Next time, 
I'm joined by Dr. Jacqueline Fear Siegel and Andy Borden as we take a closer look at the indigenous people of the United States and answer the question, who are Native Americans? Mm-hmm.